You're listening to Decisive Point. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. I'm chatting today with Harry Halem, author of Ukraine's Lessons for Future Combat, Unmanned Aerial Systems, and Deep Strike, which was published in the winter 2023-24 issue of Parameters. Halem is a senior fellow at Yorktown Institute and a doctoral candidate at the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics. Welcome to Decisive Point. What do we need to know about Ukraine's strategic problem and military learning? Ukraine's case presents a relevant example for us, both academically and in a policy context, because the strategic problem that Ukraine faced has remained similar since 2014, but is also particularly nasty. The strategic context that Ukraine faces today began in 2014 with the Russian invasion of Crimea and the Donbass War. Put simply, Ukraine has had to fight a much larger, much more technologically advanced adversary with, up until recently, a very unclear coalition of partners, even from an enabling perspective. Why is that important? Because the only answer that Ukraine could turn to to amplify combat power was to try and innovate. This innovation occurred partially societally with the volunteer companies that we saw after the 2014 Donbass War began. And those companies are still active in Ukraine today, even if they're integrated into the overall military structure. But that also meant that military innovation and military learning was taken out of a defense system that was extraordinarily overstressed. Keep in mind that the Ukrainian military had some 6,000 people that could deploy at the beginning of the 2014 war with Russia. That scaled up quite a bit since then, but the procedural and administrative and intellectual brainpower just didn't exist. It meant that the Ukrainian armed forces could access Ukrainian society and leverage the dynamism within it. That's how we get to Ukraine's innovative way of using UAS, particularly small UAS, for battlefield ISR and for deep strike. What are reconnaissance strike complexes and how have the Ukrainians organized them for maximum effect? The reconnaissance strike complex or recce strike complex concept comes from intellectual evolutions in Soviet military thought from the 1970s until the end of the Cold War. It gets noticed in the mid to late 1980s around the same time as what we would now understand as operational theory also comes to the fore in the U.S. armed forces and in European armed forces. The idea, which is wrapped up in the Soviet version of the revolution in military affairs, what they call the military technical revolution, was that future combat would be defined by what we could call the interaction between sensors and shooters. The idea that information, the ability to acquire it, process it, and then transmit it to, in Soviet terms, long-range strike elements but we can extend the logic to virtually every strike element would be decisive on the modern battlefield. Of course, the United States has picked up some of these concepts. We see that both in grappling with the RMA, with ideas of network-centric warfare, even with what JSOC did to combat a networked enemy in jihadists in the Middle East. The difference is The Ukrainian case, and now increasingly the Russian case, is the first time that we've seen comprehensive reconnaissance strike complexes deployed at scale in a mutually innovative manner. 
it shouldn't come as a surprise that the Ukrainians are the ones to integrate this and put this all together because they have a mixture of Soviet and Western heritage. They're able to draw from both the technological focus that we have and the intellectual focus of the USSR. Did Ukraine's establishment of a battle management system and the use of reconnaissance strike complexes innovate warfare and play a part in Ukraine's successful establishment of fires corridors and deep strikes in Russia? So in a word, yes, it did. Ukraine and Russia are naturally the first two nations to field militaries with mutually competitive recce strike complexes. How can we see this playing out on the battlefield? Both sides field massive quantities of mostly small UAS, although we're talking UAS at different sizes. In the article, I delineate between small, medium, large, and fixed-wing UAS for different purposes. The idea behind the system isn't just to drop grenades or mortar shells on the enemy, although that does occur, and you do see some loitering munition usage from first-person view drones on both sides. What they're really there to do is to gather immense amounts of data on the enemy. Keep in mind that most of these copter drones are civilian specification. number of the fixed-wing ones are law enforcement or military-focused. On the Russian side, the Orlan 10. On the Ukrainian side, different mostly American-derived products that are also fixed-wing, some that the military uses, some that are law enforcement-focused. Those have some hardening against the electronic disruption, but they're larger, they're more vulnerable, they're more likely to be shot down by short-range air defenses, even by rifle fire, depending on the height at which they're flying. The other side, these copter drones are just not hardened against electronic defenses in the same way as actual military hardware, which means that you need a large number of these copters to actually get reasonable battlefield awareness to be able to direct your own forces. It's not as if the entire battlefield is pristine and clear and comprehensive and can be seen. Rather, you have this back-and-forth fight between both sides trying to establish ISR superiority. How does Deep Strike figure into that? The way to combat an adversary reconnaissance strike complex is to try to, as I describe in the piece, tug it in. You try to reduce the range at which it can operate to open up gaps in its coverage and then be able to mass your forces, apply fires, and actually make gains on the ground or strike deep in a more cumulative fashion. We see both the Ukrainians and the Russians trying to do this today. In general, the Ukrainians have been more successful. The philosophy behind building a fires corridor or a strike corridor is mapping out the terrain, both physical and material, from your fire location to the target you want to hit, and then constructing a corridor first with shorter range, dumb, unguided artillery, and then longer range weapons like HIMARS, like as we now see, ATACMS, Storm Shadow or Scalp ER other long-range weapons that can hit into the enemy's depth. The Ukrainian system is more effective than the Russian system because it's more fluid. It uses Starlink and other mobile systems to move around its UAS and gain a mass-based advantage in ISR. The Russians, however, are more electronically resilient, primarily because of their wired communications method. That makes them less mobile, but it does provide the user somewhat of an electronic advantage. 
What can the U.S. learn from the Russia-Ukraine war and the strategic implications of reconnaissance strike complexes in future wars? For one, the reconnaissance strike complex logic or model is pretty clearly beginning to permeate almost all combat. We can see this in literature from the Russians, from the Chinese, on the American side, from our allies. This way of thinking about war, an information-centric one, one in which we emphasize the link between what we can see and what we can process and how we can engage the enemy is going to be most fundamental and most determinative in modern great power conflict. In turn, the Ukraine case demonstrates the tangible geographical character of informationalized warfare. Too often, much of what was written up until this war on the cyber domain, on electronic forces, didn't necessarily reckon with the fact that all combat necessarily occurs in a geographical context. Because of that, any reconnaissance strike complex needs to be matched to that geographical context. That will change its expression. It will also change its method of attack. Now, in turn, reconnaissance strike complexes will need to innovate at every level. Sensors will need to innovate. Shooters will need to innovate. Communications and battle management systems will need to innovate. They'll all need to be adapted to new means of electronic, depending on the context, cyber, and other forms of disruption. We can see that on the ground in Ukraine today in the way that Ukrainians have completely redesigned a number of UAS they've received from the West along with loitering munitions. We can also see the Russians doing the same thing. Innovation is very, very fast, and it gets to the battlefield extremely quickly. Finally, the Ukraine war is unique not simply because there are questions about escalation management and territorial strikes and boundaries on Ukraine's target set, but simply because much of the interesting and relevant targets that the Ukrainians would like to hit are what's on legally considered sovereign Ukrainian territory. It's either in the south of the country or in Crimea or in the occupied Donbass. That means that when Ukraine thinks about striking deep, sure, there are cases where you have questions of mutual territorial strikes. But by and large, Ukraine can get away with hitting its own territory and bracketing those fundamental political and grand strategic issues. That, however, is going to be far less common if we encounter a legitimate great power conflict, which we must admit is entirely possible in Eastern Europe, depending on the outcome of the current war in Ukraine. It's entirely possible in the Indo-Pacific. It may be possible elsewhere. Because of the way that large-scale great power reconnaissance strike complexes are organized, and because of the way in which both the U.S. and its most likely adversaries, Russia and China, place their high-profile reconnaissance and strike implements, heavy bombers, long-range radars, major command centers, it is increasingly easy to envision in a great power war purely militarily rational strikes by the United States and by its adversary on national territory. That raises questions about escalation management and about the political element of strategy making that we haven't necessarily had to reckon with since the end of the Cold War. And it raises them in, I would argue, a slightly more tangible way than in the Cold War, simply because the strikes on each national territory can very clearly be motivated by 
concrete operational and military strategic factors. How we deal with that, we can say is a question for policymakers, but military professionals and analysts are equally responsible coming to the solution because it's our job to provide the baseline data that policy can abstract from. Do you have any concluding thoughts you'd like to share? War is violent, war is human. Violence and humanity go together. In between drafting this piece for parameters and it going out, one of its sources was unfortunately killed in combat relatively recently before the piece came out. I say that as a reminder to all of us when we think about these questions as professionals, as analysts, and as those interested in policy, that all these questions have a very tangible human face. That's why it's our responsibility to have these debates and our responsibility to face these uncomfortable questions about combat and about escalation head on with clarity. Listeners, you can read the article at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for Volume 53, Issue 4. Harry, thank you for making time to speak with me today. Thank you again for having me on. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 